0: Welcome to the Future of Life Institute podcast. My name is Gus Docker and I'm here with Dr. Frank Sauer. Frank is head of research at the Metis Institute for Strategy and Foresight. Frank, welcome to the podcast. Hi. Hi, Gus. Thanks for having me. Great. We're going to talk about autonomous weapons systems. So, what are these systems and what would be some examples?
1: I, sh- I guess I should start by saying I usually don't use the term autonomous weapon systems. Instead, I talk about autonomy in weapon systems. Now, that might sound like super nitpicky. What is the difference? It is actually a huge difference because the way I think about these things and the way I think we should all be thinking about these things is in a functional manner rather than a categorical manner. Now, what does it mean? Let's start at the beginning. I think the the, the cleanest... and um, shortest way to define what the whole discussion about is, when we talk about autonomous weapon systems, is that there's something happening that we also see in, you know, a whole range of other aspects or fields in life, because technology is advancing. And what happens is that specific functions are being delegated from humans to machines And with regard to weapon systems, the discussion is around the so-called critical functions in the targeting cycle of the weapon system, and that is the selection and engagement of targets. And so when we're talking about autonomous weapon systems, we're talking about the selection and engagement of targets without human intervention. The machine is selecting and engaging. Uh, The machine is selecting where military force is to be applied. that's not necessarily a new thing. It's not necessarily an AI thing. And it's not necessarily a problematic thing, but there is a whole range of issues you know, that's crowded around this that we can talk about.
0: Just to, to make sure I, I get you correctly here, what is important is the autonomy, the, the software, so to speak, and, and that could be implemented in, in ground robots or drones or perhaps um, vessels that, that function at sea. And so th- th- what's, what's th- the core here is, is the autonomous decision making about who to target and, and whether to, uh, to target them.
1: That's correct. It is super important to um, separate the whole discussion from that concerned us uh, you know some 15, 20 years ago uh, surrounding drones. This is not about drones. Uh, this is about any perceivable weapon system floating in space, flying through the air, being submerged under the sea, traveling the surface of the sea, traveling at land or, you know, whatever. Maybe even in cyberspace, you know. It is, it is purely a thing of functionality. And the question, who or what, human or machine, is deciding what, when and where.
0: Why are militaries interested in autonomy in weapon systems?
1: I got into the whole um, field in 2007... I remember this quite well because I read a paper by Ron Arkin uh, from Georgia Tech. And this paper was about, I think the title read something like, an ethical governor uh, for battlefield robots. And I read this and I was like, this got to be a joke. You know, that was back in the day when we were talking about remotely piloted drones and what they mean from a legal perspective, from a political perspective, from an ethical perspective. And, you know, here Arkin says, hey, we we will do all of this via software, we will take the human out of the equation. And his one of his key arguments really was that that would make war much more humane, and uh, you know would reduce dramatically uh, the amount of atrocities and war crimes being committed. So that that was at the very beginning, that was a an important argument in the whole debate. Like take humans out of the equation because humans do terrible things to each other in war, which is true, and so we will end up with a much more uh, way of war fighting additional arguments were put forward over time you know you could say that it's much more um, cost effective to have one human pilot a whole range of system systems for instance um, and and you know I could go into more you know tangential I think arguments that have been you know put forward. The main reason in my mind is speed. It's all about military military effectiveness and military effectiveness in terms of speed. And speed meaning um, the completion of the kill chain or the targeting cycle before your adversary has done that. That will win you, tactically speaking, every single engagement. When you are done with finding, fixing, tracking, selecting and engaging the target and applying force to it, while your you know, adversary is still remotely piloting this thing and data is being bounced back and forth between the machine and the human, while your machine is doing all of this internally, you're winning that's that's it you're you, faster uh, and that is I think the main reason and the main driver behind all of it.
0: What about the trouble that militaries have that attracting and training humans to to become soldiers because this is my impression is that this might be getting harder perhaps people have more options than in the past and in the and the the human cost to to a, a returning dead soldier is is enormous. Um, and so is that also something that, that militaries are, are thinking about?
1: Yes. I mean, if you look at a country like Japan, for instance, they're quite reluctant to be doing anything about this at the international stage at this point, because they're looking at, at, their, at their country and they're saying, we got a, you know, a problem in terms of democracy. You need fairly young, fairly fit people to build an army. And that is definitely in all the OECD countries, that is an issue. And so I would say that is definitely factoring in uh, this notion of having to have a certain mass in your armed forces, that if you can't fill it with actual people in boots,
0: you have to generate some other way. And that would be machines. So that's the perceived value for militaries of autonomy in in weapon systems. How do you think that perceived value holds up to, to the actual value? So this
1: is where we need to start differentiating. Let's start with, you know, this point, mass. The importance of mass can be seen in Ukraine every day. Like, it's not like they go through hundreds and thousands of artillery shells every day. They are losing about 10,000 of those quadcopter drones per month. 10,000 per month. And so you can see that even a comparably smaller fighting force like Ukraine can leverage technology, can leverage, in this case, mass or what we would call tritable systems, systems that that are throwaway, basically, that you can afford to be losing in great numbers to fight a successful fight against an adversary that has more people, more tanks, more artillery, more everything. And so purely from a point of military effectiveness, I think there is something to that. Also, there's something to that in terms of this speeding up the targeting cycle. I mean, that is also something that Ukraine has demonstrated, you know, superbly. Like, all of NATO is looking at this and thinking, oh, we got to be doing this, you know? They use these drones. They do uh, surveillance and reconnaissance. They find a target. The target is immediately, um, the target coordinates are immediately going to the artillery. Artillery starting firing. And they're directing the, the fire of the artillery and they they have, within minutes, they can destroy a, a target, dynamic target. So that is also something that is that is that has to do with autonomy, that has to do with automating specific instances in, in the targeting cycle. And that, that is definitely, you know, increasing military effectiveness. And another thing that they will put forward is, if I may, um, this whole notion of maybe being more precise and thus more compliant with international humanitarian law. It's extremely um, important to be very careful at this point and to not conflate any of these things. Like precision-guided munitions are not necessarily making you more compliant with international humanitarian law. I can very precisely kill all the wrong people, as we've seen, I would say, for instance, with drones. right? If autonomy gives you... Let's say, hypothetically speaking, and there are ways that you could be, you know, constructing a scenario where that actually um, works this way. If autonomy gives you more precision, then precision gives you the opportunity to fight in a more uh, legally compliant manner. That is also an argument that I think you can't just wipe away and say, no, no, that's nonsense. If we were to say like in a pro and con kind of way, those are the, the pros. Then there's a whole bunch of cons, obviously, that go against this, that are ethical in nature, that have something to do with you uh, with uh, humanitarian law, and that also um, you know touch on the military reality on the ground in terms of controlling what your weapon systems are doing, blue-on-blue engagements or you know um, escalations that are unintended. And all these kinds. Of things. That's why we're having a debate. You know, we've had this debate for for in the UN at least for nine, almost ten years now. Uh, if all these things were just, you know, squeaky clean and easy and would, you know, be better for everybody across the board,
0: we wouldn't be debating. Yeah, so there are costs and, and benefits. Uh, on balance, do you think militaries should want autonomy in weapon systems?
1: It depends on what they use it for. I mean, as I said in the beginning, it's not new. The way I've been laying it out, this functional way of thinking about it, we've had had autonomy for decades, okay? For instance, in specific terminal defense systems like the Phalanx fast-firing gun on Navy vessels, for instance. You know, Patriot missile defense, which is just the times we live in. I have to be pointing to Ukraine again, um, where Patriot is on a daily basis, you know, almost on a daily basis, defending against incoming Russian missiles and, you know, saving lives, in And all these systems, Patriot, for instance, or Phalanx, they can be you know, switch to an automatic mode where the weapon system is looking for targets, selecting those targets, engaging the targets, which can go terribly wrong, as we've seen with Patriot and blue-on-blue engagements, for instance, 2003
0: in Iraq. What is blue-on-blue engagement?
1: A fratricide or friendly fire when you fire at your own forces, yeah. And so, as I said, we've had these things, we've had them for many years. I think they are um, valuable in terms of defending against material missiles, mortar shells, artillery shells coming in, the question really is, now, the time that we live in, now with the technology advancing and with uh, specifically object recognition being built into weapon systems, what happens if this niche capability of defending against something that is flying towards you is now moving out into every conceivable weapon system that is, you know, buzzing, you know, someplace and looking for targets? And this is obviously where the problems begin. So, as I said, it is not new and it is not necessarily problematic, but it can get very problematic if you start using it in an irresponsible manner, I'd say. So, yes, to answer your question, militaries should want autonomy in weapons systems, but they should be quite careful... Uh, in the way they deploy them and the way they use them and they we should be you know having lots and lots of debates more debates and good rules and regulations and specific prohibitions too um, with regard to how we use it in a responsible manner
0: there's a continuous development of autonomy it's not like there's a, there's a discrete event in which we can call this system uh, autonomous and also what what i what i heard you say was that i heard you mention as positive examples of autonomy more defensive weapons, and as as negative examples, more offensive weapons. Would would that be a fair uh, dichotomy to to be more worried about the offensive side? Unfortunately, no.
1: If you you know dig deeper, and you if you start to think about it a bit more, then the whole notion of um, delineating defense from offense just collapses onto itself. So, for instance, if you think about a counter battery radar for artillery, for instance something like that a system that would detect incoming fire and then triangulate to know where that fire is coming from and that is coupled with you know some effector that would take down the incoming munition and some other effector that might be able to reach that target. so see where i'm getting at like you have that data the question is like what do i do with the data and if i feed it into that other system that would then immediately launch like uh Maybe an artillery shell or something to destroy uh, the point uh, of uh, you know origin from where the from where the the this you know weapon was fired at you. Like, what kind of system is it? It's an, is it is it automatic defense or are you already on the offense there? So it's not really clear that we can delineate it this way. And it's also in terms of you know blurry lines and delineations. This is super important the thing that you pointed out. There is, strictly speaking, and I'm saying that, like, technically speaking, there is no such thing as autonomous weapon systems as a fixed category of weapon systems. We are not able, and we will not be able, to delineate this fixed category of autonomous weapon systems from the non-autonomous weapon systems. That's That renders the whole thing quite different from many other fields where we did arms control or humanitarian disarmament. Like, I can give you... You know a list of criteria that will pretty clearly delineate what an anti-personal landmine is and you can then quite easily distinguish it from an anti-tank mine or an assault rifle or a nuclear weapon whereas autonomy weapon systems is just it's a function it can be a feature of almost any conceivable weapon system and any weapon system can be autonomous now and now i flip the switch and now it's back to remotely piloted and you will never be able to tell from the outside looking at it, what is it? You know, I can see that's an anti-personal landmine. That's a nuclear warhead. This is just some ground robot. I don't know. Is it autonomous? Is it selecting and engaging targets without human intervention? I don't know. We will never know by looking at it from the outside, which makes it super hard in terms of formulating regulation, doing arms control. Like, if I were to say, let's cap the number of autonomous ground robots at 300, and you build 300 additional of the same robots and you tell me, well, those are remotely piloted. How would I be able to verify this? I hope it gets clear. This is where it's a bit more complicated than other things that we've dealt with in the past. And it's important to make that first step and wrap your head around the fact that this is this is about functionality and about basically um, rules in terms of application
0: rather than prohibitions or limits on specific categories of web. Well. Okay, so if we think at the the cutting edge, uh, which autonomous systems are under development? uh, Which systems worry you the most? That's an excellent
1: question. There's two ways to answer this. On the one hand, technology is increasing the capabilities, potentially, of weapon systems uh, at an amazing pace. That is the worrying part. The part that's gives me a rest (laughs) some faint rest of hope, is that militaries are inherently conservative organizations and especially western militaries that try to be at least uh, compliant with international regulations and norms and, and the law of war are quite reluctant to be using this just to see what happens basically. So if we talk about certification, validation, and actually procuring a weapon system with autonomy and then getting it into the hands of operators and them using it. This is a very long process and I would not be able to point to one specific system other than the ones that I've already mentioned that that we've had for like 20, 30 years, where autonomy is featuring in very heavily uh, in a in one of those roles that we we're imagining, like for instance, um, something like a loitering munition or some uh, some quadcopter that you could be using against enemy personnel. So, for instance, if you if you look at the the a great resource uh, to gauge where we're at is always to look at ads. And um, if you look at, for instance, I think it's Elbit, the Israeli um, company, they're making something like slaughterbots. bots. Basically, you know, the Slaughterbots video that I'm I'm pretty sure that FLI, you know, produced and I'm pretty sure most people know, depicted this dystopian future where you have like anti-personnel mini drones buzzing around, killing people by, you know, slamming into their heads. And Lanius, the system that I'm thinking of right now is kind of like that in that it is a quadcopter that will go into buildings. It will map the building. It will find people. It will track people. And it is you know equipped in a manner that you be able to engage that target, that person, and kill it. But it's interesting to look at the ad. And the ad shows that there's an operator. And the operator is authorizing the engagement of the target. It's like a pre-selection is happening. The, the system will basically radio back and say, hey, operator, I found a possible target. Is it okay for me to engage that target? And then the human is, you know, basically making an assessment and saying, yes, that is an enemy fighter rather than one of our guys or some civilian. Engage that target. That is super interesting to me. Why? Because it it shows kind of this proto-norm is already working. Like, people are already kind of hesitant about fully automating this entire kill chain. There's no reason not to be doing it from a technical perspective. It'd be easy. The system is detecting something that, you know, with 86.3%, it presumes is an enemy combatant. Why not have it, you know, go all the way? It turns out we're quite reluctant to be doing this. There's probably like an interesting research project to approach these companies and talk to them and find out, like, why are you not doing it? it? It turns out that there's not a lot of demand. Like, when you talk to industry people, they will say, we could be doing it. For sure, we're not doing it because our customers are hesitant. They don't really want that, and that tells me like there's already something at work. Like um, nobody's rushing into this. At least responsible
0: people, I think, are still hesitant about rushing into this because they know so many things could be going wrong with it. When the drone is pre-selecting a target, it must have some uh, think some decision process in there. Perhaps we could imagine, and I, I don't know if this is uh, a reality now or will ever become a reality. But we could imagine a, a set of, of uh, images of faces and a drone authorized to to find those faces in a in a in a war zone, and then present those those uh, enemies uh, for a, a human evaluator who then makes the final decision. But you know, as as you yourself have written about, uh, there is a In the pre-selection, there's also uh, decisions going on. Exactly. and uh, So I
1: think this is a perfect point in time to say the system that you've described, that would be on my prohibition list. (laughs) So, I mean, so far, I think I've not really, you know, come out as someone who's like ban killer robots simply because I think ban killer robots still is, you know, a good idea. But simply because of the way... um, we, as a, as a global community, have learned about the way this technology is de- developing and the way that we want to formulate some regulation around it. We found out that just coming out and saying this is the, the category of weapons that we want to prohibit is doing the work in this case. However, what you've described is fairly clear to me as something that should simply be prohibited. So it should not be brought into the world the slaughterbots, basically, this the system where you have a biometric target signature that says all the white people in the room, all the female persons on the street, all the people with long hair, whatever, with a certain gait, whatever you want to, uh, you know, put in there, that is purely a, a weapon of oppression and a weapon to terrorize people with. i say i'd I'd go as far as to say there is no military mm, value even in in having these kinds of weapons because this is the military's military's fight not like at least we did for the longest time and then (laughs) you know we started targeting individual people with drones and so over the last 20 years obviously a lot of you know has shifted in that regard but generally speaking you would be fighting combatants and it's not relevant if this is if this is combatant g docker <laughs> or some other person it is just a combat and so i think we we'd be would be well advised to not be even building and you know fielding and using weapons that look for specific biometric target signatures to kill people with because you know that gets into the wrong hands and we will have all kinds of you know um, trouble Um, that will be the the prohibition part. And, And this is basically International Committee of the Red Cross talking. They have laid this out quite clearly. And they said, this is definitely the one thing that we should not be doing full stop. And all the other things have to do with meaningful human control and other things that I'm sure we will get to in this conversation. But that's something, this notion of killing individual
0: people by facial recognition, that's just awful. And is this a fundamental limit of the technology or could we, could we imagine a system that is so capable and, and so precise that, that we might be interested in, in allowing it? So imagine that this system I, I described uh, came to you, a, a military decision maker, and told you, I am 97% uh, sure that I have a person here who is, who is the leader of a terrorist organization. Uh, do you want to kill this person? Is, so, is it is it a, is it a fundamental limit, or is it is it uh, about the technology being too brittle to, for us to to employ it in, in the way that I've described?
1: Several things to unpack. I mean, if if we were to automate this and say at the ninety seven percent threshold weapon system, um, if you're at this threshold, just engage. I I'd say we are in this, you know territory that i described before where i would say we shouldn't be going there if you have a system that is looking if for specific individuals and you want to say this is the general of the you know enemy armed forces and we think we have found him we have some sensors buzzing around there and it tells me you know 97 and i have a c- couple of other people and maybe i have some signals intelligence also that would corroborate this then i think we're you know fairly clearly back in the realm of just war fighting, where you would be authorizing a strike on that target but you've you have so, you had some you had some human judgment in there you had humans looking at this you're controlling the selection engagement of targets made by humans and they hopefully have done their best to also you know get additional data on this rather than just saying tells me 97 percent this is the guy the, the other thing really is and this is where it gets like Quite interesting from from an ethical and legal point of view. If we were to build the perfect killing machine, which is just perfect at everything, it it will always know who's a combatant, who's a civilian. It will never misfire. It will do all the right things. It will function perfectly, 100% IHL compliant. Should we be using it? Or some would say, aren't we then, you know, under the obligation to use it? to be more IHL compliant? Should we then just take all the rifles away from the stupid monkey humans who are making so many mistakes and just let the machines do all the killing? And this is really the question where this quicksilvery notion of human dignity comes in and where especially I as a German, we have this as the first article in our basic law, our constitution, is about human dignity, where I get like really cold feet. I do know that we basically, um, again, differentiate at this point between Kantian people and European continental philosophy and then utilitarians. So if I speak to maybe even, you know, British, American friends, even they, they they'd be like, I don't get your point, Frank. If the system is better, we should be using the system. Like, it, it will give us an advantage. Less innocent people will be killed. What is your problem? Now, the problem would be Maybe from a legal uh, point of view, we stop having an issue with the system if it works perfectly as described, because then it will be able to fulfill all the legal obligations. However, if we automate killing in this manner so that we're not even concerning ourselves anymore with who, when, when and where is getting killed in war, are we just infringing on the human dignity of the people we kill because we reduce them to anonymous data points in some you know ginormous killing machinery and you know we do know what happens if we dehumanize people if we make them into just a bunch of numbers or if we give them animal names or stuff like that so as i said there's a good reason due to our history in germany why we have this at, as the first rule of our basic law that human dignity must not and cannot be infringed on on ever and so this is really another thing that gives me pause where I'd say I'm not against using autonomy, but we should still concern ourselves with what is happening in war and rather than decoupling ourselves from it completely, which is quite dangerous in, uh, in democratic society specifically because we are risk averse, we are casualty averse. And we've seen, politically speaking, where we end up if we completely remove the human from the equation. Uh, for instance, by only be using drones, firing missiles from the sky and, you know, no longer having any meaningful skin in the game. And I don't mean we do have to be producing body bags. I mean, we should be concerning ourselves with what is happening more rather than just, you know, pushing a button in the morning. And then at the end of the day, you know, looking at a readout, which tells us, you know, the 16 targets that were engaged at this
0: point. That seems quite dystopian to me. Okay, to, to what extent do you think autonomy in in weapon systems is analogous to to nuclear weapons? So, so we've already discussed two uh, ways in which these systems are disanalogous. Um, first of all, nuclear weapons are fairly discreet in a way that autonomy is isn't, and and also um, nuclear weapons. Uh, Simply so kill many more people at once. Uh, you you can imagine perhaps swarms of uh, autonomous weapon systems, um, to killing as many people. But but nuclear weapons seem seem more destructive in, for one time use. If you think in more broad terms, how how are how is autonomy in, in weapon systems uh, analogous and disanalogous to to nuclear weapons? I think it's
1: way more disanalogous. And it is analogous. I think in many respects it is the opposite. And I know that, that for instance, there's there's some people who frame uh, you know autonomy in weapon systems, especially when we talk about swarms, as a weapon of mass destruction. I think that is a grave mistake. I think it makes no sense conceptually speaking, because autonomy in weapon systems, if we once again you know go to the slaughterbot notion, are kind of the exact opposite of what nuclear weapons are is to are doing you know nuclear weapons kill huge amounts of people indiscriminately almost in an instant whereas like small autonomous quadcopters buzzing around killing individual people and only those people beca- due to some biometric target profile that seems to me like the opposite of indiscriminate it is highly discriminate. it may just be it may just as well be uh you know against all international humanitarian law, and maybe just as well a war crime, but it's just not the same thing. It's the the thing, the actual thing that happens, the killing is completely different. So that that would be my one point. And and also, you know, I've ranted about this uh, already at length. I can clearly differentiate a nuclear weapon from any other weapon a dirty bomb is not a nuclear weapon a chemical weapon or a biological weapon or conventional weapons are not nuclear weapons Autonomy weapon systems as i said you know it's this functionality that is just you know in there or maybe or maybe not and that we just have to you know wrestle with to be able to use it in a in a responsible manner it's just not the same thing and so also which gets us to regulation You know, I I have a background, like my PhD was on nuclear weapons, on nuclear use, basically. Why did we never use nuclear weapons uh, after 1945? You know, lots of opportunities, certainly enough weapons to go around. (laughs) So we could have, but we didn't. And so, you know, there's deterrence and there's the nuclear taboo and all kinds of things that you could be talking about uh, in, in that regard. And also we did arms control and we were able to do specific things like cap numbers, prohibit specific types of weapons, and we were able to... To clearly define them and count them. And again, this is just something that we can't do in with regard to autonomy weapons. So we f- we need to find new ways of doing arms control rather
0: in a qualitative rather than quantitative manner. It doesn't make sense to talk about proliferation in the same way that we talk about proliferation for nuclear weapons in, in the in the case of of autonomy in weapon systems then. Correct, yes.
1: I mean, the the notion of proliferation is a term, I think, that was, you know, drawn from biology and from cancer research, where you have, like, cancer cells, one cancer cell that is then proliferating in in terms of, like, it's spreading cancer at specific points in the body. You will then find body uh, cancer in in the liver, for instance, where it wasn't before. And so it it goes from one point to other distinct points. That would be a good analogy to nuclear weapons because this is the way as we think of the AQ-CAN network, for instance, the Pakistani network that spread weapons technology. It's like one source of origin, one or maybe two points where something ends up. And autonomy in weapon systems obviously is not like this at all. It is software. Uh, you can It's copyable at almost no cost. You can throw it into an existing technological ecosystem where you already have basically robots, you know, things that sense, things that act. And so you just put in additional software that if you have to compute in the system, um, the system can do more, perform more, more functions than it could before. And you don't need any, you don't need to be mining uranium or you don't need nuclear reactors. And yeah, it's just much, much easier. And so I speak of technology
0: diffusion rather than proliferation because it just diffuses from every conceivable point. Does it make sense to talk about uh, escalation or a- an arms race for autonomy in weapon systems then? That is
1: a hard question. It's way harder than you think um, because we've we've gotten so used to be using the term arms race. I, I fully understand why people are using it. Because there is clearly a rush towards more technology that in the end might enable autonomy in weapon systems. In, in militaries around the globe, right? So, you know, civil-military fusion, sometimes it's called. So, for instance, the Pentagon will have offices in Silicon Valley to talk to startups. Hey, what are you doing? What is what is the research you're doing? What are you doing with uh, deep learning? Are there maybe products that we could be using that we could be, like, really quickly integrate into our, into our own innovation cycle? China's doing the exact same thing. Russia's trying to do it. So clearly there is a run towards this because everybody feels like this is like the step from away from the horse to the internal combustion engine. This is just the new engine that will power everything we're doing. And so we need to be really fast to be adopting it because our competitors might be overtaking us. And so there is this, there is a race going on. That is correct. However, if you look at the, you know, the political science definition of what an arms race is, and you look at, for instance, uh, at things like overspending, I don't really see that. if you look at, for instance, again, example from Germany, um, after the Russian invasion in Ukraine in 2022, we decided to spend a hundred billion euros on our military. And we're not buying autonomous struts, we're buying fighter planes chips like basic military stuff and and so if you were to say are we in an arms race like the cold war arms race where we're overspending and we're just you know spending 2% of our gdp just to build additional nuclear warheads that we don't need we're not in that kind of arms race maybe in brackets yet at least we're not in that now. But there's clearly this this rush and this sense of urgency around the globe where m- militaries are thinking, Ooh, we got to get into this because this is the next big thing. Having said that, I don't know how deep we want to go into all, all, all these kinds of things. It is a an endless rock, paper, scissor game. And so you might be saying, okay, now we have all these you know autonomous drones buzzing around doing things well, maybe some chicken fence or maybe some other, you know, already existing quite um, simple technology might be able to counter this very effectively on the battlefield. And then you're back to square one and all your high tech and all your deep learning maybe didn't even do that much. That, that's another thing. We don't really know for sure like how big the impact is because nobody has uh, like really started using it in a manner that is really increasing military effectiveness in a broader scope. And so we also don't know about how easy it might be to, to fool and to trick and to develop counters against it. That's another thing that I, I think is maybe part of this rush or this race that we're not putting uh, enough thought into how this might be um, quite a foolish endeavor in terms of we're, over- we're spending billions and billions of dollars to train neural nets to do this, that and the other. Um, assuming that we will be, of course, be able to, you know, uh, defeat the enemy with that. But enemy, the enemy isn't stupid. Maybe they come up with something quite clever and quite easy to just make all this
0: multi-billion-dollar effort um, useless. Uh, w- with the with the chicken wire fence, is that an actual possibility that that we might be able to to stop or or, or defeat uh, autonomous systems w- with something as simple as a chicken wire fence?
1: Yeah, I mean slaughterbots uh the slaughterbots video to me i was like whoa some, some chicken fence boom so problem
0: solved you know what i mean yeah although uh, you you equip it with some actuators and it cuts a hole in the chicken fence you could you, you could you could see how i mean now we just talked about race dynamics you would you would probably see a response from 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 the developers of, of these autonomous systems pretty pretty quickly
1: yeah for sure but but that's what i meant it's rock paper scissor and it just it keeps on going and that you know, I will have to come up with uh, with some system, maybe some laser that would blind those things or whatever. And
0: this is just how it goes. There's this concept of entanglement um, between conventional weapons and uh, weapons with more autonomy. What does this
1: mean? So the, the, the notion of entanglement is originally one where people uh, became aware of the fact that there are specific dual-use assets that... Um, are relevant to both conventional warfighting and nuclear operations. Satellites would be the prime example. If you were to destroy large parts of the US military satellite network, that would be a huge problem for them to conduct conventional operations, but it would also have an impact on their nuclear space awareness, all these kinds of things, you know, early warning, etc., etc. And so people were like, oof, um, we've got these dual-use assets, and now we have conventional weapons because of specific technologies um, that have developed over the last couple of decades. And drones would be one of those things, but also um, you know cruise missiles and you neural know, rocket technology, um, hypervelocity uh, projectiles, all these kinds of things. We have these dual use assets and they're now more vulnerable to conventional weapons. whereas you know in the in the past you would have to drop a nuke on this basically. Uh, and now you can very precisely maybe target this with a conventional weapon, so you're not really initiating a nuclear exchange, but you're targeting parts of the nuclear infrastructure of your adversary. And so that's where the idea of entanglement came from, that people were saying, oof, we have now where before we had this bright line between conventional war and then you know the red line where we step over into um, nuclear war, that is getting kind of blurry because of the way it technology is developing and also the way that doctrine has um, developed over the last couple of years and decades and so yeah you can easily see again how autonomy might just put steroids into this you know because you have maybe you have you know uncrewed weapon systems doing things and now they're doing them faster without being remotely piloted anymore that might some people you know give some people pause and think oof what about my nuclear assets you know one of the one of the ideas that is being kicked around i'm pretty um, skeptical about it but just to give you an idea of what people are talking about is this notion of the transparent ocean right so um, the best way from a nuclear powers perspective to keep your nuclear weapons so that you have a uh, credible uh, second strike capabilities to put them in, into submarines and then have them submerged so nobody knows where they are, and whenever you're attacked, you can always, you know, fire back. So you have this credible threat of being able to retaliate. And so if everything works out fine, then the first strike will never really materialize. But if you have like thousands and thousands of you know submerged sensor networks and just drones autonomously buzzing through the oceans. Looking for everything with I don't know quantum magnetometers measuring like tiny, uh, tiny changes in the Earth uh, magnetic field. All of a sudden, um, the ocean might, might become transparent. That's the the notion that is being ground tra- transparent ocean. And then your st- second strike uh, capability is all of a sudden gone because you know your submarine might be a target when the enemy decides to launch that first strike. And here here we can see how entanglement is. is you have to spill over from the conventional realm into nuclear thinking and that is of course it's not it's not good it's just a, uh, an additional
0: source of instability would nuclear facilities on the ground also be exposed potentially to autonomous systems or be be threatened by by new autonomous systems potentially yes i mean
1: we've had uh, this conversation quite specifically i remember that uh, maybe 10 years ago, the Russians were quite um, unhappy with the way the uncrewed systems development in the US was. And they were like, what if you were developing something like a conventional first strike weapon, where you go into, um, into this first strike with all kinds of precision guided munitions, um, swarms of drones and, and um, cruise missiles to basically disarm our land-based component?" And destroy all our silos and the road mobile ICBMs aren't you just you know doing terrible things to nuclear stability so we had this conversation for a fact actually i'm not sure like how much paranoia is in there because i have a hard time of you know conceiving a scenario where that actually works and, and where anybody would be insane enough to do something like this but we at least we, we're having these, these
0: conversations are happening for real. And this is something that nuclear powers think about. What do you think the world looks like if we have unregulated diffusion of uh, autonomous systems? What, what's the relevance of more traditional military assets? Uh, how, how safe does the public feel? Um, yeah, what does the world look like? I remember I, I was uh, in,
1: in Geneva at the United Nations a couple of years ago. I try to remember which year it was exactly. It was before the pandemic, maybe 2017, 18, something like this. And we were in that room, the Convention on Certain Conventional Weapons uh, room, talking autonomous, uh, talking autonomy weapon systems. And Russia has always been like quite the spoiler state there. they They would, for years and years, they would be saying, we don't even know why we should be talking about this There is no issue here. Existing international law is enough. And this is basically all all of this. What you're talking about is science fiction. And a journalist approached me and she was saying, yeah, just flew in from Moscow. We were at an arms fair. Have you seen this thing? And she showed me on her her, uh, smartphone a video that they took at the arms fair in Moscow where Kalashnikov. And you can look that up. It's on YouTube. They have an ad up. Where Kalashnikov was presenting a turret with an with an object recognition system, basically, which would look for silhouettes of people or or a truck and then open fire. And I mean, that was quite jarring. Basically, the Russian delegation saying we don't even know what you're talking about, and you know Kalashnikov at the same time selling this turret, with which selects and engages targets without human intervention, which which is an autonomous weapon system, firing at basically the silhouettes of people, of human beings. And so your question is, like, what would the world look like? Well, if we were to be fielding these kinds of weapons, we would basically kiss goodbye international humanitarian law. Because never ever in a million years... No, I'm not going to say never ever, because, you know... ChatGPT, all kinds of things, gener- generative AI, all kinds of things are happening uh, dramatically fast. So I don't know where technology is taking us. But for now, let's say for now and the foreseeable future, I have no doubt that this Kalashnikov system or its predecessor um, would never be able to uh, work in an, in an IHL compliant manner. Because it would have to be able to recognize: Is this a combatant? Is this a civilian? What is this combatant doing? Is the combatant wound, wounded? Is he trying to surrender? All these kind of things that machines are not capable of at the moment. And if we if we were to tell them, well, if the you know if the, you know this combatant is waving a white flag and tries to surrender, don't fire. Then I'd say, great, let's all you know get a white flag and then you know <laughs> just overrun the enemy because all the weapon systems wouldn't be firing because machines are dumb. This is what worries me. It's not like the intelligence it's in the systems, it's how dumb these systems are. And yes, people make mistakes, but we don't make all the same mistake at the same time at lightning speed. And so stupid machines making terrible mistakes at lightning speed, that is what worries me. And um, so a world where we're just, you know... Proliferating, no, diffusing uh, this uh, into every corner of the world and everybody's using it. I would say IHL will be a real problem. And the other thing, escalation. You know, you could easily imagine something like this just cascading out of control. It's just some sensor network sensing something. Maybe it's a mistake. We, we've had this with, in the nuclear realm, you know, with the sun glints on, on cloud covers or. These a flock of these, uh, that satellites would pick up and say, well, there's, an, there's, there's a launch in Russia," uh, or you know, vice versa, and all these near misses that we had because we were le- relying on sensor systems and automated systems that would tell us what to do. And if we just, you know, automate this all through and selection and engagement of targets is just across the board feature of everything that we're doing, then we could be in a shooting war triggered by machines um, quite quickly, and nobody would be fast enough to be pulling the plug. And so this, this these would be just two things that really give me concern. Where I would say I'm not saying we
0: shouldn't be using autonomy, but we need to be like real careful about it. How do you think autonomy changes the power balance between states? So here I'm thinking does it make it easier for states with traditionally weaker militaries to to defend or or engage states with uh, with stronger traditional militaries?
1: I think so. Um Again, I think Ukraine is demonstrating this. Um, the way they've been using uh, drones for ISR and for uh, targeting purposes um, clearly shows intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance. Yeah, it would be basically the first part of the targeting cycle: the finding, fixing, tracking. Um, they are doing this, um, and they are you know successfully beating back uh, um, uh, on paper, at least you know. Uh, much more a bigger fighting force let's say you know what this does to the balance of power generally speaking or you know if we zoom out is quite unclear to be to be honest i wouldn't venture to guess at this point because of what i was saying before we're off, we're at still which is a good thing because it gives us you know some more time to think about this and to put up some guardrails but we're still at the cusp of this I wouldn't be, you know, um, prognosticating in terms of, well, if China does this and that, then in 10 years there will it's quite unclear. Also because of the fact that, like I said, some of those things, for instance, loitering munitions, right? That but that would be something that you you deploy, it goes up in the air, it hangs around, it loiters, waits for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, maybe an hour, looks for a specific target signature, say a leopard two main battle tank, right? It finds this thing, it has an object recognition, it sees this sees the target, it says, you know, we're back to the 97%. It says that's 97%. You know, I'm sure that's a leopard two and not a school bus full of children. And so let's let's just say it, it is autonomous in the critical function. So the system goes, okay, selected, engage. And it dive bombs into the tank. And these things are nasty. We've seen this in Nagorno-Karabakh and we're now seeing it in Ukraine. Like um, the, Especially the Russians have, you know, um, ramped up production of these loitering munitions and they are terrible for Ukrainian armor. Five years from now, every fighting force will have some sort of short-range air defense. So, you know, turrets, maybe lasers, may, maybe, you know, 10 years from now, microwave beams, I don't know, to just shoot these things down. If everything goes according to, let's say, plan or the way these things usually go, then this threat for for heavy armor on the battlefield right now will have stopped being a threat in five to ten years because we will have developed countermeasures against this. And so if you look at it from the autonomy perspective, you would be saying, well, these autonomous loitering munitions, they are terrible. They're making the tank obsolete. And I'm like, no, they're not. Give it five years and the tank will have some system going and then, you know, this loaded munition will be gone and it won't probably won't be an issue. Probably that turret will be autonomous. The crew in that tank will probably not even, you know, be dealing with this. It will be looking, the tank will be looking for these kinds of munitions and it will autonomously defending against them and the crew will be safe and the tank will be just, you know,
0: doing tank things. So we're using autonomy to defend against the enemy's autonomy. Do you think, is this a positive development? Can we avoid the arms race by developing uh, counter-autonomy systems? Maybe I'm not smart enough to
1: see how we would be avoiding the arms race. It's like, if we were to avoid the arms race, then there would be a point where the rock-paper-scissor dynamic just stops, and I don't see it stopping, because that loitering munition that will be shot down by the autonomous turret on the tank That won't be around for long. And then there will be loitering munitions that probably go into a wild zigzag when diving down and to avoid the autonomous turret and then they will be useful again and then something else will come along. And, you know, I I wish we'd be spending all that money that we spend on the loitering munitions and the turret on healthcare or a million other things. But I talk to people in the industry as well and they will tell me we need autonomy to defend against autonomy. This is already going on. And like I said, we, had, we have had autonomy in those turrets and these defensive systems shooting at incoming stuff for decades. And now, you know, some of the cruise missiles and many of the missiles, the missiles always wear, are getting faster and faster, hypersonic. You don't have a lot of time to decide. And so people will tell me, we need to automate the entire thing just to be able to
0: defend against all this incoming munition stuff that is on the horizon What I was thinking was defending against loitering attacks for, for, from above with autonomy in in, in these uh, tank uh, systems that that seems like a like a defensive use and and a more positive use of of autonomy now, of course, uh, we can go back to our your earlier point about. Uh, defensive, te- defensive technology quickly becoming uh, offensive uh, technology. And so that distinction maybe isn't as meaningful. But what I was thinking was whether we could defend against autonomous systems using autonomy, but in a way that doesn't uh, provoke the enemy or or uh, push this arms race further.
1: Yeah, I, I guess so. Yeah, I mean, he, here's the thing. I had quite the learning curve. As I said, I I started catching wind of this in 2007. It's now 16 years later. Uh, I look at stuff that I wrote maybe five to six years ago. I throw my hands up in there and I'm like, why did I overcomplicate this? You know, it's a functional thing. You've got to look at this from a functional perspective. And it's who or what human or machine is selecting and engaging. So it took me a while, it took all of us a while, it took the, the international community at the UN a while to get there. But the way that we're talking about this now uh, is, I think, the level of differentiation that we should be having when we, when we have this conversation. Because, yeah, I mean, this autonomous turret, which is only and solely, and obviously, you know, tanks have automated protective systems like Trophy and so on and so forth, that all, also already exists you know, systems that would engage an incoming, you know, RPG, cutting it in half in the air before it even reaches the tank that already exists. So we're not talking about sci-fi stuff that hasn't happened yet, that, that is already in existence. You would just be, you know, further developing these kinds of systems like Trophy 2.0, which would be, you know, good against loitering ammunition. And so, like I said, the level of differentiation that we sh- should be having is what is a use that is IHL compliant that is not getting us into hot water from an ethical perspective that is not infringing on human dignity if we're shooting down loitering munitions like no one's human dignity is involved here and which is also not accelerating battlefield tempo to a point where we're you know losing control of what is happening on the battlefield what the chinese call battlefield singularity, like we're just the machines keep fighting and we don't even know what happens anymore and i would say like this turret this hypothetical target against loitering munitions on the main battle tank. I think that that satisfies all those criteria. And that is why I'm saying I'm not against autonomous weapon systems per se. I'm for a responsible manner of using them and for good guardrails um, in terms of meaningful human control. Don't use them to target individual people by facial recognition or biometric signatures. And don't, for Pizza build weapons like this Kalashnikov thing that are just, you know never able to comply with ihl because there's no
0: meaningful human control in there at all they just fire at whatever looks vaguely like a human so again back to the to the chicken wire fence what are the, the prospects of defending against autonomy by using dumb and cheap uh, solutions so there's, there's the chicken wire fence but i, I could also imagine for perhaps putting uh, masks on soldiers that are that make it so that you can't do facial recognition that, 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 that seems like a very cheap solution. I have no idea whether it would actually work. But solutions like that, what, what do you think of, of that kind of solutions? We should workshop your idea. Um, I don't know if it works, but um,
1: I think it goes back to this whole notion of the enemy also like has a say. And a good anecdote, I think, um, in this um, uh, regard is the search in Iraq in 2000, I think six, I'm not sure. When the U.S. just, you know, um, went into specific cities with much more force. And the way they did that is, or at least tried for a while, is they sent in, like, round robots. And those robots, they had a machine gun and a camera, and they were rolling, rolling in there. And what those things effectively did is give machine guns and ammunition to the enemy from a U.S. perspective, because obviously the insurgents weren't dumb. um, And obviously they just, you know, snuck away and hit while this thing was rolling by. And then, you know, they went behind it, kicked it over, took the machine gun, took all the ammunition, and, you know, went their way. And so this notion of, wow, we're automating all these things, and we're using robots, and now we're putting all kinds of object recognition and, you know, machine learning techniques into them, and that will make it so much better as I said, that could be a fool's errand. And so uh, when we're talking about autonomy and selection engagement of targets, I'm drawing an analogy to uh, self-driving cars where I'm not sure if that is still the case. But whenever I check up on it, it is still the case, which I find insane. And that is that I'm not naming specific manufacturers now, but there's one company that makes self-driving cars and they're quite advanced. The object recognition system, the computer vision system in that car, last time I checked, you know, even those very sophisticated um, systems are still being fooled by very, very simple countermeasures, um, such as a bit of reflective tape stuck onto a stop sign. Uh, Any human being would still be easily be able to say, that's a stop sign. Some tape is on there, but it's a stop sign. Uh, Whereas the system, you know, is tricked by it and, you know, stumbles and is no longer able to recognize the stop sign as a stop sign. Which is, uh, there's a term for it that it's adversarial image in searching. And so I'm thinking about this now and say, okay, if those self-driving cars that are potentially in a future, you know, um, moving around in a friendly ecosystem, all of them talking to each other, maybe even them talking to, env- to the environment, and, you know, if making them work is so hard, how hard will it be to make your system work in an in an environment that is not friendly that is not cooperative that has agents in there that will do whatever they can to trick you fool you and do all these kinds of things and so i'm thinking um probably we're moving into a future where you're just you have a 3d printer i wrote a short story on this where basically um, there's a couple of soldiers, they're in a forest, and they they have an armored vehicle, and it looks kind of weird. The one guy says, why does it look so weird? And he says, yeah, we, we have this uh, three printed stuff that we glued on there. It's just come like really quick and dirty. It's just some knobs and stuff, and it makes the ve- vehicle look weird. Um, and they found out that the, the loitering munitions and the drones buzzing overhead of the enemy are now no longer recognizing this thing. As what it is. So it trips up the the algorithm, basically, and they're now safe from the spying eyes of the enemy. It's just a story, but it, this is it goes to show that maybe we will be moving into an, a future where you can find pretty easy solutions just to fool the system, to trick it, and to no longer trigger the 97% certainty that this is a target. Maybe, it, you know, like we know from this image recognition business, it says this is a snowplow, it's a snowplow, it's a snowplow, it's a, snowplow. It's a
0: cat. Why did it say cat? These examples are all examples of, of adversarial input. And uh, what you see with uh, autonomous cars or self, self-driving cars is that when they, when they encounter some image or some input that didn't exist, uh, that wasn't repeated a lot of times in training data, they will be tripped up. So you can imagine, for example, a, a self-driving car in a, in a carnival on the street, a, a kind of festival with people in costumes. Well, how many times have a, have a self driving car uh, encountered a, a pink rabbit, uh, a person in a, in, a, in a pink rabbit costume? Probably not that many times. And that, that could trip it up. And you, can, you could see, as you described, you could see how that could be used on the battlefield with, with uh, autonomous uh, weapon systems. So perhaps, uh, perhaps you give your, your vehicle some pattern that you know trips up the enemy's uh, system. Or more bleakly, perhaps you can glue that pattern on on the enemy's uh, vehicle or a station, and so have have the enemy as uh, autonomous systems uh, attack the enemy itself, basically. So, so an instance of, of friendly fire. It's it sounds to me like you think this is this is pretty likely. I'm pretty likely. I don't know, um, but it's definitely I think something that we should
1: be aware of. And there's not a lot of people thinking about this. It's like all the Political and military discourse is on this will be great. We will be using this and it will give us these fantastic advantages. And I'm like, maybe, but you know, think one step further what might an adversary be doing? So, red team this. And yeah, I can, I can, you know, I can think of scenarios like this where you'll be able to counter with fairly simple measures something that costs. Billion dollars to develop, and it just evaporates in terms of effectiveness, and just doesn't doesn't work the way it's intended. Yeah,
0: and I think I think you made an important point by saying that in a in a war uh, situation, we're we're dealing with an enemy that's thinking very hard about how to trip up our systems. And what we see with our kind of everyday, uh, you know, with our self driving cars is that they are tripped up by. By situations that are not uh, where there isn't some intelligent adversary trying to trip it up. It's just being tripped up by by the random effects of of everyday life.
1: I mean, people are getting like really creative in war. Like, um, one thing that the Russians are doing in the minefields is just to um, stack mines three on top of each other so that when the mine clearing equipment gets in, which is, you know, designed to clear. Basically like one mine at a time to eat it up and absorb the force and then just keep rolling. They just blow up the, the those plows that they use to plow the minefield because they stack the mines. And well now what? <laughs> it's a super simple solution, and you but you've stopped the enemy in in, in, in this case the Ukrainians are the enemy from the Russian point of view, you stop them literally in their tracks. Just by stacking nobody thought of this apparently yet and and I'm just saying like this is the way it works. people are
0: inventive around these things. What about cyber attacks on autonomous uh, systems uh, you've written about manipulating GPS data for example how how feasible do you think that is?
1: Well, we should be careful at this point because I mean in a way autonomy is Pursuit because you're less susceptible to cyber attack. The, the idea of um, having a weapon system that could also be operating autonomously in terms of also selecting and engaging targets without human intervention is for the system to be capable to fulfill the mission even though uh, even when the connection to the operator is severed. So in that sense, autonomy gives you um, this comfortable situation where having a command and control link is optional. So in that sense, if you if you have a system that is also in navigating not only with GPS data but also in terms of, for instance, you know electro-optical sensors or maybe again something with the you know quantum magnetometers. I'm sorry, but I recently you know looked into those and I was like, wow, this is interesting. <laughs> so they've they've advanced um quite substantially over the past uh, couple of years. So if you give it additional points of data to work with and to be able to navigate, then it wouldn't be a problem if the GPS signal is either denied to the system or if there's a spoof going on. That's something that you can also do. You can feed it GPS data that's wrong and to make it think that it's places where it isn't. And maybe even also, like, you know, land in a country where it's not supposed to land and stuff like Supposedly, like, one of the very high, uh, very, um, Um, you know, secret US drones has been um, captured by Iran this way just by feeding it wrong GPS info. So it went down someplace where the Iranians could recover it. But um, yeah, um, it it depends. One of the key notions really is to have autonomy in there, not to be uh, having to rely on GPS and other things, but obviously feeding it, feeding the system with spoof data or just, you know, for instance, images like we were talking about before that is something that would trip it up in a way that only an autonomous system would trip up. And and cyber, yeah, you know, just to say cyber, same thing basically. If that system is completely, you know, sealed off and just operating on its own and there's no communication going in and out, you won't be you won't be having any cyber you know, issue then. Unless you've compromised it beforehand in some shape or form, you know, and you know, f- you know, f- with the software, the firmware or something, so that when something's specific happens something is triggered in the system but um yeah this is not necessarily like uh, in terms of an attack against the system from the outside when it's out there operating doing stuff
0: yeah yeah in in, in cyber if you want to make something very secure you you isolate it from the world you make it impossible to to uh, extract information about it or to feed it information but if you you can see how that just wouldn't work for for uh, autonomy or for autonomous weapons because they, they need that, this data to, to, to function and to navigate. You've written about un, the unpredictability of autonomous uh, systems. Uh, and this, is, this, is, this introduces another complexity uh, around how uh, potentially autonomous systems are perceived by the enemy. So we imagine a, a drone or a robot coming towards you and you don't know whether this, this system is autonomous. What, it, what are the effects of that?
1: Yeah, the unpredictability is what got, I think, most of the technical folks into this field um, in the very beginning. Like, it seemed to me like uh, my, my background is in political science. As I said, I've done a lot of work on nuclear weapons. I started looking into high tech weaponry in the Nords and then, you know, 2007, autonomy, all these kinds of things but i look at it from a political science strategic stability arms control point of view and the tech people they were like um, most of them they were like you can't be serious like the technology is not reliable enough to be used in this kind of setting you know there's a reason that for instance civil aviation is not touching deep learning with a ten foot pole because this is not the way air you know air travel safety works they they don't want any probabilistic systems in there it needs to be like water tight for them 99.8% is not good enough for civil aviation. And so the tech people were like, reliability and unpredictability, this is a huge problem for us. That's why we need to be... Because we, with our technical knowledge about how these systems are actually built and how neural nets are trained and what they can do and what they cannot do and what we understand and do not understand about them, we need to be telling this to the military people because when this all started in 2010, 2013, 14. The military seemed to be like, yeah, this is amazing. This is the silver bullet. We put we put some magic AI sauce into every weapon system, and then everything everything will be so much better. And the tech people were like, no, no, the reliability and the unpredictability um, that will like really come back and bite you. Because, for instance, we have no idea how your systems that you've trained on some specific set of data would be interacting with an enemy system. Trained on data. And we've seen this, for instance, uh, um, at the financial markets with um, flash crashes, where trading algorithms just trip up and get into each other's way uh, or just encounter something on the markets that they're just misinterpreting, kind of. Same with the self driving cars. And then we have just, you know, the British pound crashing down and losing, you know, many per- digits of its value in percent. Bef- and and then usually someone pulls the plug and just takes this trading algorithm offline. And if we if we imagine the same thing, just algorithms um, getting into each other's hair, uh, then we have light. and I mentioned this before this notion of a flash war, like a shooting war, being triggered algorithmically and maybe in a tempo that we are having a hard time to stop it and to you know stop it cascading through uh, you know our entire military apparatus in the end. And. These things surely, I think, um, have been discussed a lot over the last decade or so, and I can, I can tell you one thing. As I said before, like this Kantian notion of human dignity, not a lot of people are really sharing this, at least not to the same degree that, like for instance, I would. I wrote about this. But this notion of unpredictability, of delegating functions from humans to machines. And the machines performing those functions automatically, autonomously, whatever you want to call it, and us losing control, this is widely shared as a big risk. And people know this in Beijing, in Moscow, in Berlin, in Brussels, in Paris, and in in Washington, wherever you want to go, this is what gives people the creeps. And so that, that would be, especially in the time that we're living in now, like everything is Quite polarized, and you know, the international situation is tense at the moment. You need to find specific um, points of like a common denominator, like points of convergence where everybody can at least have a minuscule agreement on that, on where the problem might lie. And this is, I think, where most people can agree on that. We're getting into potentially strategic instability hot borders of the way we've never seen it before if we're rushing into this without the guardrails and uh, the control mechanisms in place and just automating things um, that then you know become runaway systems that we can't
0: um, control anymore are we likely to trust autonomous systems too much but there's a uh, there's this concept of automation bias uh, in which we we trust the decisions of uh, Autonomous sessions too much. So, how much of a problem do you think this is? It's
1: definitely a problem because we've seen um, the results of it. Um, I mentioned this before. In two thousand three, a US Patriot battery in Iraq um, shot down two friendly airplanes: an F eighteen and a I think Tornado, British Tornado, and an F eighteen US F eighteen. In the end, there's a great report on this by a person, written by a person who. Knows the Patriot missile defense system better than probably any other person on the planet. And he says that he was not surprised by this. Um, because the problem that you're dealing it- with is you have this, you know, crew of operators operating that system, and it's 23 hours, 59 minutes, and 59 seconds of total and utter boredom. And then there's this one second. Of sheer terror where you need to be deciding what to do and you will be under a heavy pressure to just do what the machine is suggesting and that is automation bias basically you've trained it and in all the training sim- simulations the machine was always right and you know you when the light was green you pushed the button to shoot down the the enemy aircraft or the enemy scott missile whatever you you know uh, have and the system works and it's great. It is, it is a big problem um, if we were to, you know, uh, be implementing this kind of automation across the board in many, many more systems. And there's no, I, probably there's people who are experts on automation bias and this, you know, the ergonomics of human-machine interfacing. I've, I'm not an expert on this, like, at all. I've talked to people who do this and who deal with this, it seems like there is no be-all, end-all solution to this. But it is, in the end, a question, I think, of training and of, yes, I mean, UI design and basically trying to make the machine talk to the human in a way that um, makes the whole human-machine team less susceptible to stuff like this. But it's definitely, it is definitely a problem.
0: And the the situation is also inherently difficult, e- even with the best uh, UI design and and setup for for extracting the the, the best decision making from humans. I would say, you, I mean, you're you're making decisions uh, with uncertain information and under enormous time pressure. As you mentioned, you you may have maybe have a minute to decide. Uh, say the system, you know, we we discussed ninety seven percent previously. Say the system presents you with. There's a ninety-seven point two five six percent probability that this is the enemy. Now, now you're you get the impression that the system is much more precise. Uh, you think, okay, if it says ninety-seven point two five six, then it's definitely not forty percent. But yeah, this would be an example of, of bad UI. If if in fact, as I would would say, it's, it's overwhelmingly likely the system is not that precise. Yeah, what what do we do about this? If anything. Um, I mean the, the the approaches that I have seen
1: um that I found to be perfectly honest a bit underwhelming where that you know the, the problem was discussed and people came in and they were like, hey, well, we're gonna we're going to be using explainable AI. And I was like, okay. You know, what does that entail? And you know, the answer was heat maps. So you would you would you would have an object recognition system and it would tell you ninety-seven percent, you know, this is a S-400, you know, enemy uh, air defense system. And then you could basically push a button and then the system would display a heat map telling you which parts of that picture it uses to come to this conclusion. So that the human looking at this would then have maybe an inclination of, All it's drawing this conclusion from looking at the trees in the background, you know, this weird image recognition stuff that happens. And then, you know, the human maybe might be able to say, hmm, maybe it's not 97%. Maybe this is just, you know, a a lorry, like a truck with logs on it, which kind of looks like an S-400. But the system got confused and it's looking at the trees, stuff like this. And I was was like, if that's, you know, the best we can do. By leveraging expandable, expandable AI, showing this kind of heat map, I'm not sure like we've really solved the problem. Um, and also, one of the things that you know uh, people will always impress on me from the military point of view is that don't have time. People in these situations do not have time to look very carefully at this heat map and you know take 30 seconds to think about this. Yeah, we don't we don't have it figured out. The only the only thing that I can say is that this gives us all the more reason to pump the brakes and not be rushing into this and maybe come up with good guardrails first before implementing these these things
0: and trying to, uh, trying to you know use them do you think that humans will remain relevant to decision making in over the long term do, do you think it'll it'll be important to keep a, a human in the loop of of making these uh, life or death decisions because we're discussing these systems as they exist now. Uh, presumably, they'll, they'll become more advanced. Maybe it'll take longer than expected, but at some point, they will probably be quite good. Uh, there are areas of, of life that that is automated now, and we, would, we wouldn't dream of, of uh, having a, a human uh, do certain jobs now. Over the long term, should, should humans remain uh, in the loop of these autonomous systems? I think the first
1: uh, thing that I would say is that the in-the-loop, on-the-loop, out-of-the-loop terminology is not really up to snuff, so I'm not using it anymore um, because the whole notion of having a, m- a system under meaningful human control that is basically the state of the art, conceptually speaking, um, uh, in terms of like how we're talking about this, does not mean a human in the loop or remotely piloted meaningful human control... Um, Um, can mean full autonomy in the weapon system. So it can mean that the whole human machine system is set up in a way that the human is no, no longer performing any of those functions in the targeting cycle. The machine is doing all of it. And still you would consider this to be under meaningful human control because the system was designed to be controllable and it is used in a way That when it's activated, the human operator can foresee what is going to happen, can administer it when, you know, something goes wrong or when he or she wants to, and that everything that happens is, um, you know, retraceable to the human due to, you know, being able to have a legal, you know, chain of accountability. This is obviously a way more complex way of thinking about this than saying, well, a human should always be in control in terms of, well, so remotely piloting, basically. We're doing everything remotely. That is not what people are talking about when when they're saying we want meaningful human control over weapons. The question really now is, like, how do we do this? And the answer is we do it in a differentiated, context-dependent manner. So let's stick with this notion of defending against incoming munitions Say you're a you're a navy frigate now, <laughs> and you're on the high seas, and you're scanning the horizon. And you you know what's around you, and there's most definitely no bus full of nuns, you know, by a sheer miracle flying through the air. That's that is not happening. Uh, let's now let's say there's a couple of contacts coming your way like very fast, and this is probably a bunch of anti ship missiles. It would be, I think, arguably. A very good idea in fact to then flip that switch and have that frigate autonomously in in that way defend itself against all these incoming targets and save the lives of the crew and you would consider this to be under meaningful human control you would know what would happen um, you would be able to deactivate at any point in time and if something were to happen and it's as i said quite unlikely it would be clear like who's responsible because we had the proper technique tactics techniques procedures and regulations in place If you have a similar system in the the U.S., for instance, they explained this once at the U.N. in in Geneva, Um, they have a system similar to phalanx, which they use on Navy vessels, um, which they use uh, on a trailer basically for land operations. And they would park this in front of a forward operating base. And they took out the option of even putting this into fully autonomous mode because they were saying it's way too dangerous you know there's so much cluttered stuff like people are walking by maybe there's a boy on a bike now there's a football there's birds in the air there's all kinds of things are happening maybe there is the the bus full of nuns driving through the through the you know through, through that whole scenario and so you need a completely different set of rules to operate this thing to have it under meaningful human control and lastly you know if let's say you're uh, Infantry in an urban environment, and you're using some something like this. What I mentioned before, the Albert Lanius system, that some quadcopter that is also has maybe some explosives or some weapons to kill people with. Even you wouldn't be throwing this into a building and just say, "Well, kill everything that moves or has like roughly 37 degree, you know, body temperature." You would be doing something like looking humans, looking at the feet making judgments about what is happening. And so to get back to the original question, what is the human's role? It, I would say it depends, but it should be as much as possible, Depend uh, depending on the situation. I'm not saying these people on the frigate need to die just because we can't be using autonomy. They can use this to defend themselves. But I think those infantry folks in the urban environment, they will have to also um, accept... Um, maybe some more risk to them. Maybe it would be easier to just have you know a bunch of slaughterbots go in there and kill everyone, but they would have to expect, uh, um, they would have to be under the obligation lawfully to accept some risk to be able to make the judgments that humans need to be making, which is who is a combatant, who is a civilian, who uh, may I, you know, who can I be engaging with which amount of force? That's also another thing that humans need to be making. We need to be discriminate. We need to be proportionate. We need to be cautious, under attack. That's stuff that is just coming out of the law and it, it's directed at humans. Humans are supposed to be making these dis, uh, uh, decisions. And they need to be doing this. And I think they will be doing this for quite a while because machines, as far as I can see, are incapable of these discrimination uh, decisions. They are most certainly unable to come up with what we would call a proportionate attack in a split second in a specific situation, we wouldn't even know how to train systems to be able to make these kinds of judgments. Uh, and so, yeah, the, the it all goes back to who or what is deciding what, when, and where. And just that depends on the operational context. And we should be having humans do the stuff that humans are good at, and we are super good at, you know, understanding situations. Um, rather than just recognizing uh, objects in an an image. We know what happens. What is he doing over there? Why is she running out of that house? A machine will not understand. We have an immediate notion of what is happening and humans should be doing this. And we can automate other things, stuff that uh, machines are good at. And so it all goes back to, there's no really black and white, super easy answer here. It is complicated, but it's not, too complicated. I think we can figure it out. We've figured out other complicated stuff in the past, and we've come up with rules to make it work in a way that we would say is, you know, compliant with the law and you know, in line with our ethics, and is not getting us into
0: extra risk. Yeah, we can imagine looking at an enemy uh, and then having to make the decision. Okay, is this is this enemy intending to to surrender? that that's <laughs> extracting information about the intention of a person in an image is is probably beyond the capabilities of of uh, current autonomous systems but it it's very much something that that humans uh, evolved to do
1: there's a fantastic picture i saw it in one of those image recognition papers and it's it's um it's like a backstage like a hallway and it's barack obama and
0: the bunch of other people in his you know it oh listeners this is a, this is an image where obama is playing a prank on another uh, I, I i'm guessing official uh, so government official where where obama is leaning on the way to make the the, the person way more than he actually does
1: exactly and, and everybody's laughing in the picture and it's like you look at this and you immediately get the, get the prank you get why it's funny you get why everybody's laughing and it's just it's a fun picture ask a machine what is happening in that picture, yeah, you, know, you
0: won't get a good answer. Although I will say, I think uh, we can try to, to to feed that image to to a large language model. Yeah, uh, in in the perhaps near future, and and things might be different. Here might be a good place to distinguish two phrases. Uh, this is a bit of legal terminology. So we have meaningful human control versus appropriate uh, appropriate human judgment. To to outsiders, this this sounds like. This is probably the same but perhaps you can explain why why context matters here and and why these phrases are actually pretty different
1: uh they are uh, in fact quite different and uh, it's also the second phrase is appropriate levels of human judgment even so it makes it makes it even more um i'd say abstract in a way so um the us was quite early with regard to all of this also in terms of putting out regulation they have a document uh with the number 3000.09 called Directive on Autonomy and Weapon Systems. And they issued this for the first time in 2012. And now they are, I think, in their third revision of this document. And this notion that you laid out, this appropriate levels of human judgment, is still very much um, like the Archimedean point in the way they think about this. Like everything revolves around these appropriate levels of human judgment. The notion is kind of the way I described it before that humans do human things and machines do machine things and the way the doctrine thinks about this is that um, we will keep this in a way that is IHL compliant and a responsible way to deal with it by making sure that we have appropriate levels of human judgment in that whole system and that basically starts with the With the conception and the initial designs of the weapon system and the prototyping and the, you know, procurement and the certification and validation and in the end, the actual use of that system. And people looked at this and and they were like, that's a bit too vague (laughs) for my taste. Basically, they were saying, what are these? uh, What when do we know when human judgment, whatever that is, um, is appropriate? At which point? And how is the human judgment being fed into that system? And so that is how meaningful human control basically came about that people were saying we need something that is more specific and impressing on on everyone that we we want the human to be in a stronger role in this human-machine relationship that we're talking about. Which is what we're talking about because we're not talking about a category of weapons. We're talking about functions and who's doing what. And yeah, that that that's how it came about, Meaningful Human Control, um, which kind of at the beginning was like an empty signifier. I perceived it as something that wasn't fully fleshed out when it was put out. But it is, it's, it's just, um, it turned out to be a very useful concept because the more people thought about this, that we want, okay, we want the human. Something. Do we want human judgment? Ah, maybe judgment is, is not really enough. Maybe we, we want control. Okay, we want human control. Now, what kind of human control do we want? Well, we don't want the human to be sitting in a booth looking at a screen. And whenever the screen turns green, we want the human to be pushing a button. We, we don't want to rob a rubber stamp. Exactly. We want actual, like, meaningful human control. That's what we want. We want the humans to be understanding what it is that they're doing. And so this is kind of how it came about, um, and this is how meaningful human control is conceptually speaking, a, a stronger idea, putting more emphasis on the human role in the human machine uh, interfacing, um, and how it separates from appropriate levels of human judgment. Um, and then you know all the rest came, all the rest came afterwards, like this the things that I was basically listing before when I was saying needs to be. Um, Foreseeable, what happens? The system needs to be administrable. There needs to be traceability for to be human, uh, legally accountable. All these kind of things, control in use, control by design. Those came afterwards. This is when, like research groups, uh, groups and and you know just different um, groups and people working on this came up uh, with ideas how we, how could we flesh out meaningful human controls so that it is actually in the end in specific operational contexts applicable, and so we can. We can make it so that the human machine team is working in a way that we, we would say from the outside, okay, the system as a whole is under meaningful human control.
0: Perhaps we should discuss the political possibilities here. So w- w- why is it difficult to, to regulate autonomy uh, if if we think internationally? I think one of the reasons um,
1: should be fairly evident from our conversation that we were having. It is a bit more complicated than...
0: For instance, counting nuclear warheads. Yeah, we, we might say that's complicated enough to count nuclear warheads.
1: Yeah, it is. I mean, uh, also in t- doing it in a way so you can do verification without giving away any of the secrets. So you would make the, yeah, that's difficult stuff. But you probably won't have as hard a time agreeing on what a nuclear warhead is. Um, And so that part definitely is easier compared to everybody agreeing on what we're talking about when we're talking about autonomous weapons systems. And I know this for a fact because I was at the UN from the from the get-go and in the beginning people were talking about drones and then for a while we were talking about Terminator and then we were talking about the category of weapons and nobody was able to define what this category is and then finally, you know, ICRC and, and some other, you know, strong voices they were saying, well, it's about selection and engagement of targets without human intervention and then it dawned on everybody, well, then it's basically a functional issue. So we need to be thinking about this in terms of the functionality and who's doing what. And so that took a while, as I said, took, took me quite a while. And um, the the process in the UN is, I think, super valuable and, and great because it gave this learning opportunity to everybody, to the states, to civil society, to academics. And so we learned about this and we are now where we are, which is we kind of know what it is that we're talking about. We also know what we should be doing about it. I, I was saying, we can regulate if we if we were to say we want meaningful human control depending on operational context, obviously the finer you, you can you have to granulate this like finer and finer, depending on what it is that you're talking about, like the frigate or the infantry peeps in the in the urban environment. But you could be saying, this is what we want. And this is also how a lot of international law works. It sets a super abstract norm and says, this is the norm. This is what we want. What it specifically means in specific contexts is quite removed from that. And nobody would expect like an international legal document to spell that out for everybody in, in in its finest detail. But we could be agreeing on that norm. Now, why don't we? Why is it so hard? It's not because we haven't understood at this point What it is that we're talking about, we have. If you meet people who in 2023 say, well, we haven't defined what a lethal autonomous weapon system is, you can say, well, either you have no idea what you're talking about or you're trying to stall the process. People will still say this in the UN and you know that you're just doing it to just pump the brakes so we're not getting anywhere.
0: Why is that the case? Is it specifically adding the phrase legal to autonomous weapon systems or what is it that's... Lethal. Lethal, yeah. Oh,
1: well, okay, that that's another thing, yeah, the, the lethality part. The, so it's two reasons. Why is it that you would still meet someone who would say lethal autonomous weapon systems, we don't have them defined yet, and so we can't enact any regulation? Like I said, the getting the complicated uh, business done and understanding what it is that we're talking about, that's done. Why are we still not enacting any rules on it? Because there's no political will. People uh, will, for instance, um, rather spend months debating about you know le- the lethality part of autonomous weapon systems which is the moniker that is being used in the UN laws LAWS which is how it started and the way the UN works is you know at at some point in the dawn of time <laughs> uh, you know regarding the the discussion of uh, autonomous weapon systems someone thought it would be a good idea to name it this way and then they all agreed upon this and there's no way going back from this it's only very, very slightly that we're trying to move away from this in newer documents that I looked at, you know, just the other day that are being circulated at the UN in Geneva, where they're trying to drop the L because you don't need lethality in there. First of all, lethality is a consequence of a use of force. You attack someone and then that ends up being lethal. It is not necessarily a characterization of the weapon system you're using, you know, non-lethal or less-than-lethal weapons can, of course, be used in a way so that they're lethal. So it doesn't make any sense to put that in there from the get-go. And also, um, that is something that we haven't talked about, but that is also, of course, an issue. Imagine like a huge system of non-lethal weapons autonomously dealing out violence. Something like a social scoring system coupled to a drone swarm where if you jaywalk, you immediately get tasered by a drone autonomously like this is this is a terrible oppressive thing and it is autonomous in uh, autonomy in weapon systems but you know no one would be saying well that's okay because it's not lethal of course it's not okay it's a terrible terrible notion so you don't need the lethal part the the aws part of the laws part uh, moniker the aws part is fine as long as you translate it as, as autonomy in weapon systems and why don't people, uh, you know, do anything about it? Because I was alluding to this before. Even before Russia attacked Ukraine in 2022, I attacked it again, uh, one should say, we were kind of stuck uh, at the uh, UN in Geneva, at the CCW. And to be perfectly honest, the the pandemic, um, I thought well, all of a sudden, the pandemic made it possible for us to w- watch it from remotely w- via you and web TV. And I was like, ooh, that's an option now. <laughs> now I don't have to, you know, go there uh, in person anymore. And it also kind of, as soon as you were removed from the room and you saw like how dismal the process really is, even though it was very valuable in terms of creating this learning curve, and it's still a valuable process to have. I'm not saying we should be No longer be talking about this. But it is not a process that you can expect to produce anything tangible. The CCW will not
0: produce any new law on this that is fairly certain. Wrapping up here, uh, the final question is, where are we in the process of regulating autonomous uh, weapons systems? What are the prospects of uh, getting uh, some form of, of norm or prohibitions established, maybe a treaty, maybe maybe via soft law? What do you think? So it's not as
1: bleak as uh, maybe it, it sounded when I was sp- speaking about the process at the CCW and how terribly stalled it is there. Um, because there is stuff happening at the UN General Assembly, First Committee in New York. There will be a resolution, hopefully, Um that will be uh, not a huge, but an important step because uh, while it's not necessarily opening up a new forum for this, it will task the secretary general to do additional things on this and just give civil society and and you know other stakeholders in this process an additional lever to pull on and say we need to be doing something about this. And and if the secgen, for instance, came back and were to say, I recommend. The international community to be doing something about this to open negotiations that would, you know, make this lever even more powerful, and we could maybe, you know, get states to finally sit down and talk about uh, the issue with a bit more substance. I mean, that's something that most people also, I think, don't understand. We have never negotiated this; it's just been talked about. So everything that has happened in the UN was just discussion. Nothing is really under negotiation in terms of we're negotiating rules or binding treaties or new international law. And so um, I'm not without any hope, but it is a marathon and not a sprint. I think what needs to be done is clear. Um, We kind of put it together in our conversation quite nicely. I think there's just a thing that should be prohibited. That would be weapons that select and engage targets without human intervention going after specific biometric signatures that would just something that i would outlaw and if we were to come up with binding rules they should say uh, in a very abstract manner no weapon systems that cannot be put under meaningful human control that is in its most abstract sense which i think the international community should be agreeing upon and as long as that is not possible because specific states just do not want to move forward on this even an inch. I think it's important to just um, have domestic process on this. Like I've been active in Germany trying to tell people, hey, we can, we can do something. We can have a doctrine. We can have a, like an official document saying the German forces, the Bundeswehr is going to use this in this and that and that manner. But we will never be doing this, that and the other. And then maybe compare this to what the French are doing and the Dutch are doing and the Brits are doing and the U.S. are doing and maybe come up with good, you know, best practices also to give to, to help build this, what I was calling before, like this proto-norm. People know that you just don't rush into this. And to flesh out this proto-norm and give people a more and more um, clear idea of how we can be using this and the things that we should definitely avoid And um, I think this way we could at least be coming to something like, uh, like soft law before we get to anything binding, like something like a catalog of best practices or a code of conduct or something, which is not great. Like, I would hope for something that is way stronger than this. But, you know, as someone who's been doing this for a decade now, I'd be happy with at least something that we then can build upon. Because as I said, it's a marathon, not a sprint,
0: unfortunately. Frank, thanks for coming on the podcast. It's been a
1: pleasure talking to you.